in this moment that we see ourselves in as a country, it really puts into focus the importance of taking the concerns of those that are marginalized, underrepresented minority communities seriously because the struggles that they experience can be struggles that extend to everyone. And whether it's for just humanitarianism or just because we're all sort of in this together, that's something that I hope that we all take away from the experience that we're in right now and something I've certainly taken with me throughout my career. This is Tech Talk, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. Since March of 2020, Dr. Patrick Hines, physician, scientist, and entrepreneur, has spent most of his time between the Detroit Children's Hospital and a nearby hotel room, where he stays to minimize COVID-19 risk to his family. But Patrick is undaunted by this, saying that helping people is in his DNA. From very humble beginnings in North Carolina, Patrick watched his parents, both teachers, mentor poor rural children at school and at home, and inspired in him the desire to give back. This is Tectonics. I'm David Shaywitz. And I'm Lisa Sunan, and we're grateful to Manat Health for sponsoring today's episode of Tectonics. Manat Health integrates strategic business consulting, public policy acumen, legal excellence, and deep analytics capabilities to better serve the complex needs of clients across America's healthcare system. Together with its parent company, Manat Phelps & Phillips, the firm's multidisciplinary team is dedicated to helping its clients across all industries grow and prosper. So, David, how are you doing today? I'm doing okay. You know. Well, that's good. Um, I've been uh, watching the news, and I mean, it's been for years now. It's getting worse, but uh, I've been struck by the level of um, racially motivated uh, misery that's going on, or anti, you know, or prejudice-motivated mis- misery, I should say. Um, have you ever experienced that yourself? Have you ever felt like you were the victim of prejudice? You know, in the context of what we've all been seeing, there's no way either of us could ever, I don't think, could really even begin to imagine. So like on, yeah. on that level, I would say no. The one interesting um, example is, is in, it wouldn't be in a context you'd think of when I um, uh, was getting ready to start my freshman year um, at Harvard. Um, you, you talk to your roommates in advance on the phone, you know, who are they going to be because you get a list. And then... Um, uh, I was talking to this one guy, I uh, turned out to be some super reactionary guy. And he, you know, five minutes into the conversation, he goes, uh, you a Jew? And I was like, uh, yes, I am. He goes, that's okay. I'm tolerant. So, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. we, we, we didn't last very long. Um, but like, like, I mean, but that I, it's, it stands out because it was so obviously exceptional, both for the institution and, and, and for most of my like experiences and, watching what what's going on and, and what we've seen going on I, it it just seems almost unimaginable yeah I, unfortunately it's it's all too imaginable because we can see it anyways um we're gonna come away from that and talk to um somebody who's really dedicated to um positivity dr patrick hines who Gosh, we could i use adore <laughs> and admire and says that helping people is in his dna uh, despite working his way through college on a music scholarship. Another Patrick, music one. Oh I know. God. Patrick found his way to medicine when getting his PhD made him realize that research wasn't his path. Today, he is a practicing pediatric ICU physician, but he lives out his passion to help patients with sickle cell disease as founder and CEO of Functional Fluidics. Hello, Patrick. Hello, Lisa. How are you doing? I'm good. It's so good to talk to you as 
uh, I do often, which is wonderful, but I'm just delighted to have you on the show. Well, it's, it's an honor to be here. I'm, I'm a big fan of the show and it's an amazing opportunity to get the chance to participate in the and to meet you and David uh, in, in action. So happy to be here. Well, we don't disappoint. Spent... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. I know you've spent a lot of the last few months alone in an apartment near Detroit Children's Hospital so you can help with the COVID-19 fight and not bring it home to your family. How has that been? How are you doing? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm hanging in there. Uh, I really, really miss being home and just all of the little stuff that you kind of take for granted, getting up, hearing the kids running around, fussing and arguing and, and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, I'm not a fan of, of quiet and <laughs> solitude. <so. laughs> Although there can't so. be much quiet and solitude at the hospital either, I imagine. Oh, that's that's been pretty busy. But, um, you know, a, a lot of different things going on uh, between the, the work in the hospital and the work with uh, with functional fluidics and the uh, the stuff we're trying to do there. So uh, definitely a lot to keep me busy. There hasn't been any 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 lack of things to do. So I'm glad to hear it. And um, I know uh, just going back in time, you grew up in rural North Carolina and said your life was your life plan was to be a wide receiver for the Washington Redskins, specifically number 87, Charlie Brown. What happened, Patrick? You failed. Yeah, yeah. I was probably uh, 120 soaking wet with a pocket full of nickels, so I, that, that wasn't in the plans for me. Huh. Plus, my mom wasn't going to let me get my, my brain rattled around, and that was way before the, all the concussion stuff, so my mom was ahead of her time. Uh, <laughs> so I went academics and music. <laughs> so your dad, I know, is an accomplished singer. He was classically trained baritone, a choir director, a voice teacher, and you had an early affinity for music, and you and you you know engaged with it actively uh, early and and now. T tell us about that. So music was just something that was just a, an amazing uh, opportunity to release for self expression. Um, so I was a, initially was a trumpet player and I transitioned to French horn, which I think is the most gorgeous brass instrument of, of them all. Uh, of course, I'm a little biased and, um, uh, you know, I, I, worked at it. It's one of the more difficult brass instruments to play, but, um, you know, there's a lot of scholarship opportunity if you can play the French horn well. Um, so not only just the appreciation for music, but it, it, it gave me a, uh, a, a pathway to be able to, uh, you know, fund my way to college and pursue what I ultimately ended up doing. So, um, so it was a win-win. So, uh, yeah, David, you, you alluded to this. So many of the scientists and physicians we interview have musical backgrounds and skills. What do you think that's about, Patrick? I think science is, is so much about science that has to do with creativity, um, with being able to take your own unique way of seeing the world um, and express it in a way that only you can. And I think music sort of teaches you that and it's sort of foundational. Um, even when you're reading the same score, um, you can express that, the way you express that musically is going to be different from the next person. It's not going to sound exactly alike. And I think that's why in science, we need representation from a lot of different areas to really get the best um, answers to scientific questions we're trying to answer, because I think we all have a different take on how we look at data, how we interpret data. And so the more um, 
perspectives we can get on that in science the same way in music i think you get a fuller expression of what's uh, of what reality is interesting oh, i love that yeah i was just i just had this vision of a, of a data report you know on looking like uh like you know musical chart you know it's sort of an interesting <laughs> visual in my head um so instead of music or football career um you went to hampton university majored in chemistry of all things and headed into research what was your plan so I knew that I, I really liked science and, and chemistry um, was sort of my favorite discipline at the time. But I honestly, Lisa, didn't know what I was going to do with it when I got to college. Um, I, I had an opportunity to do a lot of research in college, which I'd, <clears throat> I'd never done before in high school. So that was my first experience in a laboratory and, and actually doing research. And so, you know, I didn't come into college thinking that that was even an option. Um, most people that I knew about that at least heard of that took science and, and um, an interest in that and did something with it professionally ended up being doctors, although I didn't know any personally. So I figured that that was, you know, in the cards that maybe I could go to medical school. Um, but the more I got into research, doing it both at university, um, I spent a couple summers at the NIH and the uh, and at NIDDK doing uh, research with some amazing people out there, spent a summer out in uh, the University of Dar es Salaam in Tanzania doing some natural products chemistry. Uh, I was I was really caught the the research bug and, and really wanted to figure out a way to to merge uh, clinical medicine with research. I couldn't see doing one without the other by the time I, I got to my senior year. So early on, you were involved in the study of hydroxyurea and, and uh, the first treatment for sickle cell disease and and had a mentor focused in that area. And, and so you've been kind of dedicated to that field ever since. What was it that drew your interest? So I was really lucky. Um, in an MD-PhD program, one of the main points of anxiety that I think folks have is just the, the time um, that you're committing to it. And so uh, I was lucky enough that uh, the, the director of the MD-PhD program at the time at the University of North Carolina, uh, Eugene Oringer, um, was very involved in the uh, original studies that were going on with hydroxyurea. And he connected me with Leslie Parisi, who was uh, ultimately my PhD mentor. She was a platelet biologist, but was uh, starting to do more and more work in red blood cells. And so, um, you know, she was very interested in how acellular, uh, anuclear cells uh, signaled and, and did a lot of really interesting things biochemically and wanted to apply some of those same principles to red blood cells in the context of sickle cell disease. So we were one of the first uh, folks to figure out how the body um, is, how the, how the body is able to, to use its inflammatory signals to talk to red cells in similar ways they do to platelets to modify their behavior. And, um, and this ended up being a big uh, contributor to the problems that sickle cell patients were having. And, and one of the things that helped us identify some of the, the most important um, therapeutic targets for, for folks with sickle cell disease. It's such an interesting, you know, as an area to study because the very first um, molecular disease, right, defined by Linus Pauling, very first one was sickle cell, right? Sickle cell disease, right. And yeah. his paper in his 2D gel electrophoresis with the uh, spot not showing up in the right place. Um, and yet it's really eluded um, molecular treatment. I mean, they, I, for all hydroxyurea, I mean, that, that, that's not the ideal treatment for, I mean, I know, I know I mean, obviously, but how, how did you sort of, was it weird to keep both of those thoughts in your head? Like on the one hand, here's this sort of canonical molecular disease, 
And then do you start to think, well, geez, this is all we have? Yeah, it was it was a. Uh... It was frustrating to see patients suffering for uh, for decades uh, with the disease that you figured we've got to be able to come up with a way to attack this. Um, interesting that you bring up guys falling in the first molecular disease. I mean, there, there are a lot of single gene conditions that, that really benefited from that discovery, right? Cystic fibrosis and hemophilia. And, and we've been able to come up with uh, ways to, to therapeutically tackle those diseases um, decades before we ever came up with anything specific. Well, that's kind of what I was wondering about. Yeah, it's a little yeah. bit, um, given relatively high prevalence in particular, right? It's, uh, right. It, it, would, it would seem, well, how do you suppose that that is? Well, I think it, it really shows you the, the power of advocacy. Um, in hemophilia and cystic fibrosis, for example, there are some really strong patient advocacy groups, uh, strong funding and support from the NIH, um, this stuff doesn't just happen, and it's not just necessarily um, uh, due to some inherent thing about the disease itself that makes sickle cell a more difficult thing to solve than some of these other uh, single gene disorders that, that did have solutions. Uh, I think there was a lot more advocacy, a lot more investment, a lot more uh, hmm. NIH research dollars going into those other conditions, and and you see the benefit of that, and and you know. Uh, it's, it's great to see those patients benefiting from that and living healthy lives and thriving. Um, and, and we want to do the same thing with sickle cell disease. Uh, I, I feel like it's something that we should have done decades ago, but I'm just glad that we're at a revolutionary um, period in medical history now where there's three FDA approved targeted therapies for sickle cell disease, not to mention the genetic therapies that are on the horizon also. So it's a, it's a, it's a very exciting time to be in the field. Is there at least an opportunity to leverage, like you're saying, the way that history evolved isn't the way anyone would have chosen to have it evolve, I imagine. But to say, well, now you can see, apply some of the techniques and approaches that maybe have been effective in these other conditions and at least use that to sort of leapfrog somebody, you know, to, to apply it to this condition? Absolutely. Yeah. I think, I think we've definitely learned a lot in the context of gene therapy. Um, so although sickle cell was sort of leapfrogged uh, with the advent of some of the other uh, genetic therapies, gene editing therapies, I think now sickle cell is benefiting from some of that knowledge gained from those areas. And, um, and you see companies like Bloomberg and, um, and, uh, uh, CRISPR um, and BioVerative that are developing some really interesting, um, you know, gene therapy solutions to sickle cell disease that uh, are showing a lot of promise right now. So, um, so we're, we're seeing it now, and it's and it's glad I'm glad that we're we're finally starting to present something more tangible for patients for therapy. So you, I mean, maybe we should just jump ahead to that for now. Come back a little bit to your history, but you know, how does functional fluidics fit into this picture? That's a, thanks for asking that, Lisa. So, um, so since I was a grad student, um, we had developed lots of diagnostic tools to be able to assess uh, the health of red blood cells, and and learned a lot about how um, ways that we assess red blood cell health in the laboratory translated into what was actually happening with patients at the bedside, and and seeing this stuff in the in the laboratory but knowing that clinicians didn't have the tools to leverage this knowledge when they're taking care of patients uh, was always a point of frustration. But back when I was doing that work, there, there weren't any drug companies that were 
putting a lot of investment in developing targeted therapies. And so without any therapies, there, there's not a lot of interest in investing in the diagnostic tools. So what changed in that around 2012, 13, there was more investment in targeted red blood cell modifying therapies um, that were going to be first applied to sickle cell disease. And one of the biggest roadblocks that these therapies had was that they weren't able to, um, it was difficult to get FDA approval because unlike other conditions like cardiovascular disease where you can measure LDL or uh, blood pressure, um, uh, there wasn't a surrogate endpoint that you could use huh. to assess how patients were responding to these therapies. We were using things like pain and very subjective uh, endpoints, which made it very difficult, even for really well-designed, effective therapies to show clinical benefit the way those studies were being designed at the time. So we saw an opportunity to leverage these red blood cell um, health uh, assessment platforms for the purposes of drug development and later for clinical applications. So just to interrupt or, or to sort of pause on that, uh, maybe Lisa, um, it's interesting because this is almost an inverse example. Typically one hears about how people come up with these mm -hmm. for drug development, these molecular endpoints, and they say, well, geez, why don't you study something that's relevant for patients? But here it almost looks like the reverse where the um, endpoint that people are focusing on is at a certain level what's ultra relevant for patients, what you're describing as the pain associated with what, a sickle crisis, right? Correct, um, right. But what you're saying is, but in order to sort of make the, you know, to sort of optimize a product and to evaluate it along the way, you need to be able to, you know, that's not when you want to look at it. You want to be able to look at something sort of earlier and to, to sort of make adjustments sooner. And for that, you need sort of a, a more detailed molecular understanding um, of the uh, of the cell you're trying to impact, and it sounds like that's what your approach uh, or, or your your interest was in measuring. Exactly, exactly. You, you hit the nail on the head, and and we felt like if we could, you know, we're, we're developing these red blood cell modifying therapies in the premise that they're making red blood cells healthier and they're functioning more normally, they're more stable, they're surviving longer in the circulation, they're uh, interacting less with the vascular wall. Um, and we're assuming that the clinical endpoints are gonna show us this, but there's a lot of things that we can see along the way in terms of uh, you know, diagnostic tools that'll show us how healthy these red cells are pre and post um, that could potentially be surrogates for these clinical endpoints. And, and that's where we was sort of our, our vision for both sickle cell disease and a whole host of other um, uh, clinical indications where red cell health, so to speak, but that's what I was running, like for thalassemias. So any, yeah, any any red blood cell specific uh, disorder, your you know all your your thalassemias. There, there's uh, many other hemoglobinopathies um, that we see in other um, areas of the world outside of the U.S. Um, but then there are other diseases outside of red blood cell uh, specific diseases, such as cardiovascular disease. I mean, damaged red blood cells induce systemic inflammation that causes. Um, more thrombosis and, and can, can contribute to myocardial infarctions and strokes, the same with diabetes and, and glycosylated red blood cells being stickier and causing vasculopathy. Um, and we also see some interesting things in sepsis that we think have applications to the oxygen delivery problems we're seeing in COVID-19, uh, where we've seen a few patients that have extraordinarily abnormal red blood cell uh, function. And 
we're interested in whether that can potentially be predictive of which individuals with COVID are likely to have bad outcomes. Wow, that would be huge. Yeah, it's, it's amazing work. I think it's, it's really exciting to listen to what you're doing. And I think, you know, it's interesting that your kind of your background got you here. I know when you decided you weren't going to be a researcher for life, you, you went to med school. Um, uh, I think at UNC, right? At, yeah, UNC Chapel Hill. Yeah, and, and you ended up with a residency at, at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, which uh, actually we interviewed Madeline Bell recently. Oh, okay. Um, but then you and your and your wife, uh, also an MD PhD, so you know, a bunch of overachievers, decided to uh, take an opportunity and move to Detroit during the financial crisis when everybody else was heading out. Um, what was that like? I mean, what was it like in Detroit at that time, and you know, especially at Children's, where you ended up working? That that was a really interesting experience. Um, I never lived in the Midwest before. I mean, I, I grew up in North Carolina, um, went to college forty five minutes away in uh, Southeast Virginia at Hampton University, then to, you know UNC Chapel Hill. Um, I was courting my wife who was at Hopkins at the time. And so I spent a lot of time in Baltimore, uh, just sort of chasing her. And, and then we ended up at, in Philly, um, where I was in residency and fellowship at CHOP. And we had our first child when we were there. Um, so, you know, she took a year off uh, doing her, her um, intern year. And she was applying for a dermatology uh, residency at the time. And saw an opportunity at University of Michigan where she really liked that program, ranked it first, and that's where she ended up matching. So, uh, wow. so we all followed her up there to Ann Arbor at the time, and and uh, I got my first job at, at Children's Hospital of Michigan in Detroit. So that was about a forty-five minute commute. Um, it was tough to get up here for all the people that were driving in the opposite direction, like you said. <laughs> but it was just, uh, you know, I'd lived in multiple different big cities like that before, but Detroit was just very, very different. I mean, just the, um, you know, the downtown was just decimated. I mean, there, there was, you know, all the shops were boarded up and, and the, the, you know, the buildings weren't occupied. Um, the things we were seeing in the ICU at the time uh, were really reflection of what was happening in the society. I mean, some very simple general pediatric problems like asthma and diabetes just going horribly wrong because there weren't folks weren't getting the basic primary care that they needed um and so we're seeing some really end stage uh complications of of, of asthma and diabetes and, and a lot of uh non-accidental trauma due to the stress that families were experiencing from job loss and the economic difficulties that folks were experiencing and to, to be able to you know you hear about this stuff on the news um, and everyone was talking about Detroit, the largest municipal bankruptcy and all the kind of things that were going on. But to see it play out in, in the lives of these kids that had nothing to do with any of this stuff um, was just was really difficult. But but you also see how resilient folks are. Well, that's right? what I wanted to ask you. I mean, you hear about a, the Detroit um, a renaissance and what was it? There's a wa the Shinola watch company or something. Yeah. Right? You know, but I mean, like, you know, but like there are a lot of I feel like I've read and listen to a lot of uh, stuff about the sort of the rebirth of the city and, and the sort of the, the new energy. Has that been your experience or is it still kind of coming slowly? That, that's been one of the most amazing things I think I've ever, ever experienced was just seeing a city that was like literally on its back. Um, right. Have the grit to, and when the whole country, the world was just uh, sort of shaking its head at, 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 you know, 
what what happened, um, how they managed to to pick themselves up and and rebuild and to have the grit and the fortitude to do that um, when you know the whole world is kind of counting you out. Right. Uh, totally. It, yeah, you know, it's funny. I I was with Patrick in Detroit. What is that now? Two years ago? Yeah, yeah. You, uh, you took me and some others uh, on a walking tour of downtown, and it was beautiful. I mean, the buildings that were coming back and all these beautiful lofts being built. I was really surprised because, I mean, all the PR, right? I, all right, I'd ever heard right. about Detroit, aside from Motown, was that it was, you know, a war zone, basically, and it was anything but that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this, the, the, the real estate's coming back, but then you've got this diversification of the economy. You've got uh, healthcare startups and you've got, you know, IT startups and, um, and, and renewable energy startups that are, that are happening. And, and there's, you know, a lot more investment that's happening. And, and, and that energy is attracting folks from all over, the, all over the country, all over the world to come back. Uh, the, the restaurant scene is amazing. Lisa, if you come back, oh my God, there's so many places <laughs> you know, once we get through COVID and, and places can start to open up again, we can actually sit down, uh, you know, right. I don't know where to start. <laughs> so you, you know, through your work at CHOP and then at Children's Detroit, you stayed focused on the silk cell work and you started Functional Fluidics first as a service platform, basically helping biotechs and now um, as a company doing diagnostics. Um, I think, you know, I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts on, on raising money and being an, an entrepreneur, uh, you know, given that you're African-American and that is not the typical person right, right. That, that is seen by venture capitalists and like, how was your experience? compared to being a doctor say you know yeah yeah you know you're you're in medicine and you're um you know especially something like icu where you know a lot of us are control freaks we we like to be in control of a situation um and we think we can we can manage we can handle we know what we're doing you try to pivot and um and and we were starting functional fluidics I was learning a whole new area. It was really exciting. I was learning about starting a company and, and, and all the things that went along with fundraising and putting together a business plan. And, and, and the, the opportunity seemed amazing to me, but what I learned was that, uh, you know, the investors are, are looking at very different things. And, and, and one of the most memorable experiences that I had that really changed the way that we approach the the sort of genesis of functional fluidics was a conversation with an investor when I was sort of showing them the pitch deck. And I, I usually start with a patient story. And I started with the story of a little girl with sickle cell disease that was, uh, you know, in the ICU, really kind of clinging to life. And, and then kind of went through how our test could prevent things like this from happening, how they could, you know, economically uh, benefit healthcare systems and, 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 and reduce the cost of care and, and help drugs develop. And at the end of it, the comment was, you know, I think you've got a really solid business plan. Um, this makes a lot of sense. You're getting interest and you're generating revenue, but we, we got to get the the, the, the African-American kid off the front because that's just not going to resonate with people. And maybe we can think about one of your other indications that are going to um, target a population. Unbelievable. That that's un they that's literally said that. And, and that's when I decided that I've got to figure out another way to do this because uh, the folks that need what we're doing the most need it now. And 
am I going to compromise that and, and, and change our approach? Uh, or am I going to stick to sort of my guns and believe in what we're doing and believe in the, the, the folks we're trying to help? And that's when we ended up doing more of a bootstrapping model where uh, the, the pharmaceutical companies saw the value in what we were doing. And so we were able to support ourselves for the next three years um, with just revenue that we generated through um, uh, contract partnerships. With pharma. Yeah. yeah. So the sort of goal, Lisa, wasn't to be a service company. I mean, it was really that we, we wanted to develop the diagnostic and, and, and develop that. Uh, I, I mean, there is a tough business model separate from far separate. From, I mean, the, 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 the need, it seems incredibly compelling. I think there's a separate challenging conversation that always exists, I think, between, um, you know, developing a diagnostic, whereas basically where there's a lot more money historically is in therapeutics, right? Sure, sure. And so, and like, so I, I that, the, the idea of, you know, the, I mean, that seems to be a perennial debate. I mean, particularly now with all of this IP, everyone's like, oh, we can do this fancy diagnostic genetics. Everyone's like, you know, but how do you convert that to therapeutics? But the, what you described, how people are like, no, you can't build your story around, around an African-American woman who's, who has, I mean, it just, it just seems, it seems a historic. I, I just can't imagine. I mean, you experience this and it does just like one of these things, Lisa, I guess, where you don't even know what you're not, you know, like what you're not experiencing, right? I, if you, if someone told me that, I wouldn't have believed it. I mean, like that, that, that still happens, that uh -huh. people think that way. It, it sounds shocking. I think we're seeing it on TV right about now. So you've made it pretty clear, Patrick, that you're like, damn the torpedoes, you're going to go full steam ahead and make it work. Um, yeah. How, how has that gone? I mean, in some ways you're probably better off bootstrapping companies, I think, than and getting a lot further along before you take, you know, institutional work for Judy Faulkner. Right. I mean, <laughs> um, it, it worked out pretty well. I mean, we were able to build some really great relationships with some of our pharma partners. We were able to learn a lot of really uh, important information about the relationship between the red cell health parameters that we were measuring and clinical outcomes. Um, we had a uh, amazing longitudinal study that we did in partnership with Pfizer. Um, where we were able to show that um, when you when when patients with sickle cell disease, and this is something that's relevant to what's happening now, one of the biggest issues that they face when they go into an ER is someone believing their pain. When they say that I'm in pain, you can't measure it with the lab, you can't look at it and see it. So you have to believe this what this person is telling you. And any sickle cell patient you talk to will tell you that they feel like they aren't really. Um, their, their, their pain isn't taken seriously to the point where many folks with sickle cell disease, when they experience these excruciating pain episodes, wouldn't even come to the hospital because they, they, they would rather suffer wow. at home than deal with sort of the indignity of going to the emergency room. We were able That's to show that biomarkers change in relationship to the self-reported pain experience of these, uh, of these patients with sickle cell disease that we followed longitudinally. So this wasn't something they were making up. There is biology that correlated with their self-report of pain, uh, which, which when you talk to sort of the, the, the patients that were in the studies and we sort of shared some of the data with them, and it was so validating to hear that, you know, this is, you know, it's almost like, like the videos that we see of what's happening now where we're telling you what's happening, right? We're, <laughs> but yeah. until we can show you 
and folks can see it with their own eyes. Now we can believe. You're making the. I mean, happening. speaking about the um, the pain situation, where you're making the invisible visible, right? I mean, you know, it's just. Um, it's just so. But again, it's again. I remember in my own training. It was the it, all you. I mean, I thought that the key so much of what one hears about sickle cell is exactly the pain. I couldn't imagine that. I didn't realize that. I didn't realize that that was part of his lived experiences. I had thought that people were pretty sensitized to the idea of the horrific pain. I mean, that's what that's, that's, I remember that being drilled into us. Yeah, yeah. There's there's studies showing that that uh, over two thirds of the patients that experience clinically significant vasoocclusive pain episodes um, self manage those episodes at home and do not come to the emergency department because of those reasons that I described earlier. Um, and, and these, in terms of the, the inflammatory biomarkers and the other indicators of what the biology is that's driving this pain episode, um, they were equivalent in patients who both chose to stay at home and patients that showed up in the, in the emergency departments for pain. So we were, so the other thing about it, we were only studying about a third to a quarter of the pain episodes, we were trying to understand how do we treat these acute episodes in these drug studies? Because a, a condition of, of entering the study is that you had to have a pain episode that would bring you to medical attention. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, kind of stunning. So you recently made a big decision, which is to dedicate yourself full-time to the company and to step away from most of your clinical practice, step away from the ICU. Are you excited about that? Nervous about that? What do you think that's going to be like? Wow, it's uh, it's surreal. It's it's scary, um, but it's exciting at the same time. Um, it's it's hard to step away from clinical medicine just because I love the patient interaction. I love. I feel like I have something to offer to the patients that that I see. Um, but as we sort of progress in the different funding rounds and the sort of the, the stakes are higher, um, it's clear that my presence and focus on this has to be, um, you know, significantly more in order for this to be successful and for us to kind of get this to the patients that we think need it most right now. So um, I'm excited about the opportunity because I think we got a great team. I think that, um, you know, we really have an opportunity to do something special, not only for sickle cell disease, but for some of these other indications that we're interested in looking at also. Um, we talked a little bit about the, the work in COVID. And, um, and so we're, we're excited. We're, we're gearing up and, and hopefully are going to do some, some pretty interesting things. So I can't wait to keep you posted about that. I can't wait to hear about it. And I also mm-hmm. am excited to hear that you've returned to music. Um, and, uh, taking voice lessons from your dad, which is cool, wow, and singing with your cool. son. And I, I understand you just made your very first in public appearance singing. Oh, that that's a little overstated. I say. <laughs> so my 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 parents spent most of the school year with us, helping us with our kids, um, and so because we had my dad basically living with us. Um, my son was, my oldest son was interested in, in, in singing. So he would give him voice lessons, but to encourage him to, to do that, as I told him, look, if, if you take this seriously, I'll even take voice lessons with you and we can do this together. So it's kind of a, 
you know, a thing that we, we, we did together with my dad. And so it was amazing. It's like three generations of, mm-hmm. uh, of us uh, sitting around the piano and sort of learning from, you know, one of the most amazing vocalists I, I, I've ever met, which happens to be my dad. So uh, it's, it's really cool to, to ha- kind of have that experience. It's great. So, Patrick, I um, I love hearing you talk about the music and especially the singing with your dad and your son. And I think it, it makes you just, you know, sparkle. So I, when we while we say goodbye to you and thank you for being on the show, we're going to play you out with your favorite song, uh, Gregory Porter's When Love Was King. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's been great to have you on. Nothing more, nothing less than to give your friend your best. Today's guest, Patrick Hines, was speaking to us live from his Detroit hotel room where he's staying while he fights the coronavirus at work. Wow, that was really um, almost disproportionately informative. You know, it was, um, you just don't know what you don't know about um, about some things. And uh, I, I guess there were so much that was striking, but his experience with um, the two parts that were most striking were one, the sickle cell patients who are not getting cared for um, because people aren't taking their pain seriously. Um, I was really surprised by that because I feel like it was, I just learned so much about sickle cell pain, I thought, but it looks like in the real world, that's not how people are seeing it. And then also terrible, I mean, it shouldn't have like two terrible points, but how uh, a venture investor said, oh, you have to get the African-American woman suffering from sickle cell disease that your medicine can help with out of your deck because it decreases your um, the value of your company. Was, I mean, you could, you couldn't even have a more blatant just just example of like literally how some lives seem to be less valued. It was unbelievable. I mean, it was literally unbelievable. You know, I we've spent a lot of time talking about, um, you know, equality for women as entrepreneurs and as, as venture capitalists uh, and not, you know, very much talking about the impact on minorities. I think it's far worse. Um, and it's really disappointing because um, some of the greatest, you know, inventions we might have found probably been lost to that, you know, unfortunate prejudice. So I'm glad to see Patrick succeeding despite uh, some of the pushback he's gotten from people. And you know, it's just so striking that there's others. I know I'm sort of obsessing on it, Lisa, but I'm, I mean, obviously, one of the things we're seeing out in the real world is just people are, are having very different live you know, experiences in ways that people who aren't having those experiences you know you drive around you don't worry about being stopped i imagine um uh you know for 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 some contrived offense but it ha- i mean you watch it really happen or jogging when you're jogging or yeah. doing whatever you're doing it you just you would never even think and then to seeing it happen and to seeing it happen in a sphere that you view that, that you have such you think you have such deep experience with, right? Like, I think I have deep experience as a physician. I think I have deep experience as an investor. And then watching this stuff happen in what you consider to some degree your community, you know, just sort of especially striking, I'd say. Indeed. So on a lighter note, you can follow David's column, Astounding Health Tech, at the Timmerman Report. Please remember to give us a positive review on iTunes if you like the show. And thanks again to Connected Social Media for their efforts to make it even better. And you can follow Lisa Sunin's writing at VentureValkyrie.com. As always, we are grateful to Manat Health for sponsoring today's episode of Tectonics. Manat Health integrates strategic business consulting, public policy acumen, 
legal excellence, and deep analytics capabilities to better serve the complex needs of clients across America's healthcare system. Together with its parent company, Manat, Phelps, and Phillips, the firm's multidisciplinary team is dedicated to helping its clients across all industries grow and prosper. When love was king, he showed respect for every man, regardless of their skin and clan. Beside him. His mighty queen, an equal force, wise and keen. He lifted up the underneath and all. His wealth he did bequeath to those who toiled without a gain. So they would remember his reign. To call your own Right next to this mighty shining throne When love was king When love Keep.